1: The Waco History Podcast is sponsored by Brotherwell Brewery on Historic Bridge Street in Waco.
2: Cross the Brazos and Waco, ride hard and I'll make it by dawn. Cross the Brazos and Waco, I'm safe when I reach San Antonio.
1: Welcome back to the Waco History Podcast. So as I I thought of this episode, I'll introduce my guest here in a minute, but uh, when Randy Lane and I started this years ago, we wanted this to be a warts and all podcast. So the goal here is not to celebrate Waco's history, but to understand Waco's history. And so I brought in a colleague of mine, Benna Vaughn. Welcome, Benna.
0: Hi, thank you.
1: Bennett is a uh, long-time employee, uh, a, a fellow a member of the university libraries at Baylor University. You've been at Baylor since 2001. One. And I know you were in the uh, legislative, Pogue Legislative Library for... 11 years. 11 years. And so you've been about the same time, I guess, now in the Texas collection. Right. So she's a uh, rare manuscripts and books Uh, archivist in the Texas collection, which is office, uh, did I say that right? Yes. Okay. Which is office downstairs from me, so I bug Benna quite a bit, but I am uh, bringing, uh, bugging Benna to come in today, and we're going to talk about who, Benna?
0: Horace Sherman Miller.
1: Horace Sherman Miller. So if you'll Google it, you know what we mean by Wart. Um, But he was was a, a local, and he was a local of some influence. Uh, and uh, we're going to get into why, but I would say this, again, as a bit of a disclaimer as we go forward. Uh, If we talk about being on the wrong side of history or the right side of history or those who fought for something and those who fought against, to even honor those that fought for, we need to have a full idea uh, of what they were fighting against. And so in this case, uh, those who were fighting for uh, civil rights and equality were fighting against uh, folks like Horace Sherman Miller and the idea being if we if librarians don't do their work as Benna has done her work we don't have that record and so what they were fighting for there's an absence of what they were fighting against so I'm really right. I, I'm really uh, proud of the work that that Benna has done with this particular collection organizing it at Bailey University Libraries but all right let's jump in Benna tell tell us a little well give us some of your back your background and then we'll we'll move into Horace Sherman Miller and we'll separate that. So we won't mix the two.
0: My background, um, well, um, I'm an archivist. I love archival work and, um, processing collections is one of the main things that I do at the Texas collection. Mm -hmm. So I work mostly with the Texas documents. So all Texas all the time that includes Waco. Mm Um, and, Do you want me to go
2: indoors now?
1: You're not only a certified uh, archivist. I am. uh, I know you're involved professionally in archival organizations. So why are archivists important? If somebody's listening and they don't know what an archivist does, why are they important?
0: Archivists save and preserve records and historical documents of enduring value. Uh, and that includes intrinsic value and historical value. So, um, if if an archivist doesn't save it, it doesn't. It's not there for mm-hmm. posterity. So, um, I feel like it's an important job. Yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah. So we can use an example of what we're about to talk about. This right. is a, a collection that has important historical value here locally. Uh, before we jump into this rather large collection that you worked on. Uh, tell us a little bit about who this guy is.
0: Horace Horace Sherman yeah. Miller was um, a local guy, born uh, in eighteen what eighty nine or so, eighteen ninety seven, and he lived in Walnut Springs, local. Country guy, uh, grew up working in the rail yards, a lot about his age, and joined the Navy to participate in World War I. Um, Was discharged in 1919, I believe, Mm -hmm. but he never saw overseas service, so he went back to the rail yards Um, and, you know, grew up poor and kind of wandered around, got married, um, and Eventually, eventually got struck by lightning uh, in Amarillo when he was there on a rail job. Um, came back to Waco, developed tuberculosis, uh, went into the sanitarium. His wife left him, uh, and he just kind of went back and forth between uh, the sanitarium and his mom and stepdad's house here in Waco. So that's, that's kind of how he got, you know, a foothold here in Waco. Um he became an invalid mm. um there's not a lot in his material that tells us too much about his personality prior mm-hmm. to this uh debilitating disease but he he became increasingly um bitter negative um he was um i think after reading some of his correspondence and and looking and reading a thesis that was done on him in 89 by a Baylor student, it kind of feels like he felt put upon, Mm -hmm. you know, by all of his circumstances. So um, he began writing, a writing career. Mm -hmm. Now, he never had anything published nationally. He tried short stories and fiction, and um, it it was not uh, wonderful. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you
1: said the those non-fiction fiction books are in the collection. We have what, copies. What did they, what, what were those on? What sort of things um, was he writing on? The non-fiction,
0: the, the fiction stuff was kind of like um, local yokel hayseed stories okay. of that type. You know, he tried yeah. to write with um, a pronunciated draw okay. to his words. And, and like a some of the stories sound like a, a country hick kind of sound reading it so it, it was it was cheesy mm-hmm. you know and mm-hmm. and not well written um nothing was ever published but the things that did get published were his um letters to uh newspaper editors mm-hmm. politicians things like that they um he was a sort of um white supremacist in view and mm-hmm. um after uh, Brown versus the Board of Education, that became very sharply focused. Okay, and he uh, joined the Klan, um, and he only uh, lasted about two years. They really they kicked him out in 1957 because he, although he was the Texas Cleagle, which mm-hmm. is the recruiting recruiting mm-hmm. officer, mm-hmm. Uh, he never founded a group. In Texas during those two years. So they finally just got rid of him. But during this time, he's, he's writing and talking with other uh, like-minded white supremacists in the South. Mm-hmm. And um, he develops a, a newsletter of his own. And he calls his group the Aryan Knights of the Ku Klux Klan.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And he begins a mail order, so to speak, Klan
1: yeah so th- um just to just to back up a little bit I know he joins the American Confederate Army mm-hmm. and the Christian nationalist political right. party in fifty two and so he is involved in these uh national organizations for a little bit yes right yes and then the the group that you mentioned um it, is a group he comes up with and he creates right
0: he does he does when he was ejected from the plan I guess that's how you would say it um. He continued to put forth his views on white supremacy, which were really um, all-encompassing—not mm-hmm. just against uh, people of color, but Catholics and Jewish people, and the mm-hmm. government, and the military, and communism, and all of that. So he—it was—it was more global, and his his focus wound up being global
1: okay and so uh, brown v board uh happens Mm -hmm. in 54 and you said that was kind of a galvanizing thing for him his reaction to that
0: clan in 57 to 59
1: okay okay
0: i mean 55 to 57 55 to
1: 57 and then and and then going back i saw he was born in 1901 was it 1901 yeah so that explains why he needed a lie Mm -hmm. uh for the great war so, as someone who has uh, spent more time <laughs> in his writings than one should, can can you tell me a little bit about the nature of you know th- this mail order service? Like, what what is he sending out? How is it organized? That sort of thing.
0: His newsletter. A lot of it, he takes articles from newspapers and newsletters, and he puts it all together into one conglomerated newsletter calls it the Aryan views and sends it out Mm -hmm. now um, he his material is used by other white supremacists uh, Pyle in Tennessee Mm -hmm. um, and some others they get his newsletters and, and of course they distribute it to other people and it just spreads but he also winds up with a very large global Um, readership Mm -hmm. following especially in South America
1: So do you know like the sources that he's lifting things from? I mean how much of it is original content he's creating and how much of it is just distributing or digesting other
0: The newsletter it it looks to be the majority of accumulated work with just some of his own things put in Mm -hmm. Um, now, a lot of the things that he does get published on his own are those letters to editors and things, and they will publish them in papers, and then he'll include that in mm-hmm. his newsletters as well. So I would say mostly it's um, outside content, not necessarily his.
1: Okay. And as you established, uh, he's, he's, in, he's uh, bedridden.
0: He becomes bedridden. The um, tuberculosis settles in his bones. Uh, they become very brittle and he he does his work from bed with a typewriter hanging over it
1: and so this is his mom and stepfather's yes. house he mm-hmm. settles in in waco yes and so he's living there i guess initially he's he's living there off of them he, he can't make a, a a wage do we, do we have a, cis, a sense of kind of how his mail order business evolved like, well
0: the majority of his money was spent in publishing this having it printed and mm-hmm. then mailed Okay. He tried to get the Klan to pay for some of this dissemination, but and they did just for a small bit. But most of it was all him. Mm-hmm. And um, in fact, he complains a lot about how much it's costing him to get this stuff out there. But he continues to do it.
1: Mm-hmm. Does he? Um, does he have kind of a cause statement or kind of a a byline that? as he publishes that explains kind of why he sees he's doing what he's doing.
0: I've seen um quite a few different things that he said, but I mm-hmm. off the top of my there's so much. Yeah. Steven, yeah. there's so much and and he he says things over and over, but then he says thing different things to other, you know, people he's corresponding with. So it it it's while he um talks about uh, white man's party, things of this nature, mm-hmm. um, I don't recall an an absolute statement mm-hmm. of his own.
1: Mm-hmm. Are there particular kind of causes or issues that he, he seems to center on in the content that he's distributing?
0: Yeah, he. Um, there are subject files in his collection, mm-hmm. and, and those are the... Files and material that he collected and that he felt was important to keep, and they are on African Americans, Catholics, um, Jewish people, um, communism, the Klan, and the U.S. government and military.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: So those are the the broad umbrellas. And then within that, he would pick up on anything in newspapers. I've got... um, Let's see, over 127 different newspaper titles in that collection. Oh, wow. I have got over 220 different newsletters. And these are from grassroots groups, religious groups, mili- uh, government groups, foreign material. Um, just what, That's what's so impressive to me about his collection is mm-hmm. the breadth of the material he was able to collect about those issues during that time period
1: yeah and even as we think about the importance of the collection um these may be the only representation of some of these publications that is archived anywhere yes i mean that would be a its own research project which would be a big research project So, this is the 50s, so I got to assume he's getting these via mail. Yes. And he's cutting and pasting this thing together?
0: He he is, and the foreign material, he has people in other states translating it for him. Okay. And then sending him the translations. So, he's cutting, he's pasting, but he also collects um, full publications. Okay. Of a lot of the journals, magazines, um, newsletters. And then there are just general publications that don't really, um, that weren't uh, collected in runs, but are just really interesting and often disturbing material.
1: Mm. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. Um, his... His business. I mean, how I'm just interested in in kind of a little bit of an insight in the mail order sort of <laughs> business that he's running in in the late 1950s. You know, um, you know how he's making it work. I mean, do we know what his subscription rates are or anything like that? Um,
0: there were some figures in the um, thesis that was written on him, mm-hmm. uh, and this gentleman put together a publication amounts and figures and things like that, but I have boxes of addresses, names and addresses and and mailing lists and things of that nature within the material.
1: Okay. And uh, I've seen uh, you present on this and you highlighted kind of the international. Yes. And I'm just, you know, in in an age of the internet, you know, we know how hate spreads uh, digitally. I'm just trying to wrap my mind around, I mean, share, if you would, some of the places that he ends up uh, well, mailing to.
0: There are 29 foreign countries mm-hmm. that he mails to. Um, a lot of the South America countries, of course, and that, that kind of makes sense after the war. Um, but also uh, Egypt, Finland, Greece, Israel, Italy, uh, South America, Um uh, of course Canada the United States uh Belgium Austria I could go on Yeah <laughs> I have a list Mexico uh, not Ni- Nigeria
1: yeah, I'm I'm just trying to I'm trying to get a sense of how someone in Nigeria would know to sign up mail order or a I, thing like this I yeah. don't
0: know I think that people well, contextually, during mm-hmm. that time period it was it was a period of fear mm-hmm. for everyone, yeah in some way or another, and yeah. I think they they shared this information and they shared these materials and uh it it just grew, and it seemed to have grown pretty rapidly, yeah which, as you say with the in, uh, with the internet, it's instantaneous, but this this seemed to be a rapid spread of material Mm
1: -hmm. because he's going to pass away in 62 64 64 Mm -hmm. so we're not talking about a long period Mm -hmm. here i mean he really starts developing this business model this newsletter in the late 50s i'd say 58 58 Mm -hmm. so and he's going to publish it up until his death right Mm -hmm. okay so there's about a six-year period where this thing is growing
0: he puts out about 996 newsletters Okay, so then we've got just about every one of them
1: so i'm I'm trying to nine hundred and ninety six so I'm thinking is this he a had, weekly or I'm, I'm thinking
0: it eh. sometimes may have been more than one a week, yeah you know, okay, as the need was, so to speak
1: mm-hmm. for him, yeah hmm. um is he also gathering um responses? To his work,
0: there is a uh, yes. There's mm-hmm. a lot of correspondence, incoming and outgoing. So we've got, um, you know, the things that people were sending him, telling him, you know, calling him, uh, brother Miller, and you know, you're right on, and this is this is what we need to do, and and all of this, and and you know, go Aryan. and then you've got the other end people. Um, Telling him he's nuts, Mm -hmm. and then you've got the invitations to the Kennedy dinner the night before the president was assassinated.
1: Oh my gosh, wow!
0: And I'm, you know, he was anti-Kennedy,
1: anti-Catholic,
0: and wrote everyone. So uh, you Mm. know, maybe they just sent him an invitation to try to bring him around. I don't know, (laughs) but but it's in the collection as well.
1: Oh my gosh, Uh, that that raises. uh, a good point. I mean, what are some other things that you remember coming across? Because uh, this is a collection that that sat there for a long time, it right? Did. And was unprocessed.
0: Interestingly enough, uh, it started coming in in fifty eight, mm-hmm. and I've come across correspondence between he and Guy B. Harrison Jr. in the cl- control files that mm-hmm. that um, allude to a discussion they had about the collection and Guy B.'s interest in having it.
1: Okay, so just so other folks will know, Guy B. was the director of yes. the Texas collection and a at the time,
0: history professor mm-hmm. at Baylor, mm-hmm. and so. So he started uh, depositing material in 58. Mm -hmm. Um, It would come in increments, um, big, little. He um, would—it was—no one was to look at it except for him and the CIA, the FBI, and the people at the Texas Collection. Those were the stipulations he was putting in this correspondence I'm looking at.
1: Did, did he offer any explanation why he wanted to allow the FBI and the CIA to take a look at it?
0: I do not. Okay. It, it didn't go into into vast detail there. Um, but um, in his will, which I believe he—we have a copy of it. I think it was 61, mm. late 61, when okay. he— Uh, He put his collection in the will, and what was left that he had not given Mm -hmm. upon his death would come to the Texas collection. Mm -hmm. And then it was closed for 20 years. Okay. So uh, it would not have been available for research without his permission until
1: 1985.
0: Okay. But it, it still sat there. Um waiting to be processed and and there were probably many, many reasons for that I think mm-hmm. um, context had changed by the eighties
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, historical preferences and things that were being studied and things going on in the country mm-hmm. in the world mm-hmm. um you know were were not the same as they were in the fifties and sixties in some ways. Mm-hmm. And then you know there may have been a little embarrassment. Sure. I mean, you know, you're going to go out and promote this, mm-hmm. um, and so it sat, and um, finally decided that something should be done with it.
1: Can you talk about the decision to begin working on it? Just, I mean, how that conversation went, and yeah,
0: actually, <laughs> because you
1: took, a, I mean, you took on this task. It's it's been a lot of work for you. It it has. It
0: it, um, started it, uh, had, I was finishing up a collection and I had a a grad student. And so Mm -hmm. I said, well, can you inventory these, this collection for me while I'm finishing this other one up? Mm -hmm. And so this was right before COVID and in 2019. And so she was doing inventories on all the newspapers because there were so many and they had not been inventoried. And then COVID hit and, you know, we slowed down on the processing. So I worked on the regular files. Um, But the decision to actually process it was kind of a, it's time. You know, we need to get this processed. It was large. And so we were kind of hoping that it would shrink. And that we would make some space for for collections coming in right now. That was not the case. Uh, Actually, it 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 grew quite a bit.
1: So it's 128 boxes. If you're wanting to know how big the collection is, and
0: and 41 of those boxes are oversized boxes with large publications in them. Okay. So, um, especially you know during COVID, and then. Um, George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. and it was just like, okay, this is—it's time to own this mm-hmm. in in a bigger sense than just having it set on the stacks. We need this can be used. Mm-hmm. We're at a college; this can be used in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. So um, when we came back and uh, the students came back to campus, um, bless her heart, I had a a um, undergraduate student assistant who was just starting and uh, she graduates this next month and she's finished it with okay. me. So, okay. so um, and some of it was tough for her. Yeah. Um, so it, it wasn't a, a sit down, okay, we we need, you know, a, all around the table decision. It was just, okay, let's, let's just, let's get it done.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. uh, One time I did, uh, we assisted with an oral history project on the civil rights movement in Texas prisons. And I had some undergraduate transcriptionists that were listening to the interviews and transcribing it. And I'm wondering if, I mean, and it was very challenging for some of them, some of the things they heard about, some of the things that they were exposed to uh, in the interview. And I, I didn't, I didn't think through enough to prepare them Right. Yeah. And so I, so I'm interested. I mean, you've been an archivist for a time now. I mean, just thoughts about working in this sort of collection. Are there additional kind of considerations for processing something like this? That there are. Yeah.
0: There are a lot of them. Um, of course, students today
2: mm-hmm.
0: aren't used to seeing this brutal yeah verbiage, images, and things like that. I, it, in a different way, yes, but this is this is very harsh material, and mm-hmm. i was I found that the longer I worked with it, the kind of heavier mm-hmm. it became for yeah. me and and it wasn't about me, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean I'm yeah, an old sure. white woman, okay <laughs> uh, uh, and you know I'm not Catholic and i'm not jewish and and this is not in my face yeah. as it is with so many other people mm-hmm. that will be looking at it. Um, so I, I can't imagine, but I can imagine um, that this material will be triggering to mm-hmm. some, yeah. that it will be um, extremely offensive to most, um, and and that we have to realize that people who are gonna come in and look at this May never have been exposed to something this, in your face. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a piece of plexiglass standing between you and this document telling you how to interpret it. It's all, yeah, guttural and, in, you know, emotional and primal in a way, especially some of the more um, race-related material.
1: Yeah, yeah. You can't. I mean. You know you can't put an asterisk on all of it, I mean it's just hard to prepare someone for no this. and
0: and in the finding aid i'm um, which is the guide to the collection that people will be able to access online, you know, I say that um, this material was made in a time that is different from today mm-hmm. uh, and the context of how and when that was created um needs to be remembered when you're using it. And we have chosen to leave the folder titles and mm-hmm. and the words yeah. as they were to maintain that context. You can't just get rid of everything. And and they need to be able to look at this and they need to be able to study it and understand why things are
1: yeah. the way they are. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah, we dealt with this in oral histories that have certain language in them and you're tempted to scrub. Yeah. Uh, but if you scrub, then you create a record that's void. Uh, those sort of things, like we were talking about uh, before. So, um, one of the things that I, I grabbed his obituary because I, w- I was interested in, in looking at it, and it it says he was the he was the subject of many postal inspector investigations. I don't know <laughs> if it was any of that in the the archive that, um, you, that you ran across.
0: I didn't uh I didn't see that section of it now remember there's so much there it yeah it, I I would still be working on it if I got sure. actually read everything what I do know is that quite a bit of his foreign correspondence they'll say um don't sign this and and send it to a different address don't uh, mail this to my home don't put my name on this you know that cuz especially in South America Chile mm-hmm. um Argentina um, they were watching Horace's network there, mm-hmm. um, and I call it Horace's network. That's not what it was, but it was uh, a subgroup of uh, foreign clan type stuff, and and they were kind of using his material, um, and they would they were very careful postally because um, they would wind up disappearing. I've got friends who've disappeared things of this nature. It mm-hmm. was, and I think it, I, I read somewhere in the papers that some of his material has even led to um, bombings and deaths in South America.
1: Oh my gosh. So, yeah. um,
0: the uh, grad, uh, student uh, using this material recently from Emory University mm-hmm. um, was looking at the networks, the white supremacy networks internationally and globally. Mm -hmm. And he came across Miller's material in the uh, National Jewish Archive. And it talked in the Argentina files because it talked about the Argentina government watching Miller Mm -hmm. and his material and and looking for it to come into the country.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, sometimes you, you process things and they sit there a while and they're not used. What was it like talking to him after he... Used some of the collection. What was it? what were his reviews of the collection?
0: Well, he um, he wrote us a, a very nice <laughs> um, write up on it. I thought I brought it, but maybe I didn't. He said that uh, oh yeah, um, um, what he was uh, researching was uh, quote a global post World War II matrix of white supremacists that spanned every continent except Antarctica. Mm. And that um, boxes of propaganda from Argentina, Austria, Belgium, India, Palestine, South America, Spain, and the U.S. publishers illuminate a startlingly robust far-right print culture that historians have yet to consider. Oh, wow. So, yeah. yeah. He says that it's a collection unlike any collection on the Civil Rights era or KKK that he's come across. Wow. So, uh, which was pretty high praise. He's been in all these places. Mm -hmm. And he said that this collection even led him to two foreign collections that he needs to check out before he can finish his, uh,
2: dissertation. Mm -hmm.
1: The, the, uh, back to Horace Sherman Miller for just a minute. I mean, that's, that's amazing. I mean, that's a, Mm a great validation of the many hours that, that you guys spent processing this collection. And, and the the money that's going to be spent maintaining and preserving the collection, right. um, the the organization that he created, you know the 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 Aryan Knights Knights, oh, Knights of the yeah, mm-hmm. so it, it really only it's not an organization as we would think about it. It's really a subscription club to the to the newsletter.
0: Yes, it basically. Yeah. basically as
1: far as members go right he was the sole member of the uh he was the lone (laughs) member of the of the organization right uh yeah
0: yeah, no i was just
1: wondering if it expanded to more of a a membership organization
0: he would refer to people as brothers you Mm -hmm. know and things of that nature but it was just more in a You know, kind of inclusive inclusivity type thing. You're you're a you're a white supremacist too, Mm -hmm. type thing. Um, I think he is on one list, post um, un-American committee, but not anything else. You know, nothing. No Klan ever really got off the ground during that time period, and he he certainly didn't accept this very wide global mm-hmm. thing. Now, there were some some locals, there's, there's plenty of addresses in there.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, the, those that receive the newsletter. Mm-hmm. But we don't have a sense that they're meeting or no. active in that no. regard. Yeah, okay. You know, I, I think, I mean, there, there's, I can understand why this researcher is looking into it as we think of kind of media networks now right. and, and where are the roots. Uh, of those sorts of media networks and how information spreads and how particular information about hate and, and yes. sentiments of hate yes. spread. I mean, you know, mail order seems to be the great, 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 great grandfather <laughs> of things that we would think about now in contemporary Absolutely. Uh, circles. Yeah. Are there any other things that you ran across in the collection that you want to make sure uh, you mention? That kind of uh, uh, maybe also shine a light on what you found uh, as you glimpse through. And again, I know you're not holding every piece. No, that's not what um, that's not what this involved. But
0: uh, a lot of shock, you know, just mm-hmm. on the different. Again, it was that accumulation that That most impressed me, which which made it a little difficult to I even presented on this at conference a year ago, and, yeah. and you know you you get some funny looks when you're promoting yeah. the collection of a white supremacist yeah and and why is this so great? well, it's not great for what you think I'm saying it's great for, mm-hmm. you know. Um, it is great for that, too, in its own way, for just for understanding and context and knowing why.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, there are so many things, Stephen, in this collection. I think if I had time to delve deeper, mm-hmm. um, I would go into the correspondence and mm-hmm. read it, read it fully, Yeah, which I don't get to. Um, sure. Because I think... I think to be able to understand more how this came about, you've got to read between the lines in his correspondence. Mm-hmm. Um I know in the dissertation that Davis wrote in eighty nine, he, he does go into the correspondence between um Pyle and um Miller and it talks about their developing relationship and how Pyle um, kind of uh, mentors him in writing because Miller didn't graduate from high school. Yeah, um, so that's kind of impressive in itself that he would, you know, wind up doing something like this. But, mm-hmm. but he um, he kind of uh, mentors him in in trying to in tries to better his writing, mm-hmm. um, teach him how to. Um, in fact, one letter talks about how you need to respond to clergy to shut them down mm-hmm. when they're trying to say, no, this is not, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that kind of thing. And, and I think I would go back into that correspondence a lot deeper. Um, some of the um, newsletters from um, grassroots organizations and the things they supported mm-hmm. are interesting um, I think actually there's a lot of material um, in support of him and, and the Klan movement from uh, pastors mm. and things of that nature mm-hmm. in there, and that needs to be looked at a little more closely as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think there's a host of avenues of yeah. research from the collection. So. Um, so thanks for your work on it.
0: Well, you're welcome. Thank you for
1: acknowledging. I hope, acknowledging. I, I hope <laughs> your, your next project maybe <laughs> is a little... You know, I, I do oral history on some rough things, and every now and then I say, I'm going to do a puppies and you know unicorns <laughs> oral history project.
0: Yeah, stuff. I'm not going to choose
1: yeah. uh, <laughs> something <laughs> you, like this. You need, you need a sorbet to kind of cleanse exactly, the palate exactly. a little bit after this. But I sure appreciate your work on it. Thank you. And, um, and coming and talking about it.
0: I'm excited that, that it's going to be used. That's mm-hmm. why we do this. Mm-hmm. We preserve this material for historical research mm-hmm. and and that kind of thing and then that, that's what this needs to be used for otherwise it's just taking up space mm-hmm. and we're storage and that's not what we're there for
1: so if you want to go see benna and <laughs> uh, take advantage of all the great resources of the texas collection they're there in carroll library on the first floor you can come up to the third floor and say hi to me uh, if if you want to but uh amazing collections there at the texas collection Uh, Thanks, Benna, for coming in and talking to us.
0: Thank you, Stephen, for
2: having me.
1: Thanks for listening to the Waco History Podcast. Like what you heard? Subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes so we can reach more listeners. You can find show notes and info on every episode at wacohistorypodcast.com and more info on Waco's past at wacohistory.org. Our theme music, used with permission, is Cross the Brazos at Waco, performed by the late Billy Walker. For more info on Billy's music, go to billywalker.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. This has been a Rogue Media Network production.